Well, as you can see from our decorations, we just celebrated Advent or Christmas. Actually, they're Calvary Church's decorations. And we should be grateful, right? I mean, man, it's really, really nice of them um, to leave these up. But we spent the Advent or Christmas season doing this study where we were looking at major figures in the Old Testament and their births and how they hinted at, how they foreshadowed Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. Particularly, we were looking at this, that um, Jesus came and filled roles or offices. He was a go-between between God and man. He was a mediator. He was the great priest. He was the great king. He was the great prophet. And it's that last one I want to look at today and look at it as a doorway between Advent and the new year, a hinge turning between 2016 and 2017 as we look ahead. Now, New Year's Day has been celebrated you know, for thousands of years across every culture. You might be surprised to know you know, 2,000 years ago, they were having New Year's Day celebrations. It wasn't January 1st, it was closer to March, but they were having them. And the first Janu January 1st celebration was in B.C. 45. Julius Caesar ordered it. And uh, they celebrated in January as a dedication to their god Janus, who was the god of beginnings and doorways and gateways. And so it was this idea of looking ahead to a new year. The Christian church in its calendar would use this Sunday to commemorate the circumcision and naming of Jesus Christ and their character. And so, uh, but most people today celebrate it in the Roman sense, right? They, they look ahead to this day and they think about the year to come. And that inevitably brings up the idea of hope. How is your hope this evening of New Year's Day? I think for some of us, maybe we have high hopes. You know, this, we, we have maybe a new job we're looking forward to, or we're in a relationship that we're excited about. Or maybe there's some stuff happening this year, a trip we're going to take, or whatever for reason, we're looking ahead to the early months of 2017, and we feel full of hope. Others of us, maybe we're sort of in the middle. We're cautiously hopeful. There was a song by the Counting Crows some years ago called A Long December. And, you know, and in that song, you know, the line said, A Long December, and there's reason to believe that maybe this year will be better than the last. So maybe you're there where you're thinking, maybe this year will be better than the one I just had. And then I think some of us, if we're honest, uh, we're at a low place. Uh, we're thinking, well, you know, I had a lot of trouble and trials this past year, and there's nothing magical about a calendar date, and they're going to be following me back into this week and in the next months. And so as you look ahead, maybe the hope meter is pretty low. I have to believe in this room there's all that sort of represented. Well, this passage situates itself really at that third place. Israel has gone through a really long December. I mean, more than a long December. They have gone through years of uh, instability, division, and violence. At this point, Israel is divided into two nations. They've basically broken apart. 
Uh, there's instability all around them. Uh, the nation, Syria, is falling apart at that time. We prayed for Syria just moments ago. Here we look at this time, and they're struggling. The kingdom of Judah, which was the second half of Israel's kingdom, is basically you know, being circled like vultures circling a prey that's almost dead. Egypt and Babylon are just waiting for Judah to go so they can take it. And when Israel looks to its leaders, it's really up and down. They had Josiah, he was a real reformer, but Jehoiakim, he's an evil tyrant, and Zedekiah, he, his mind changes like the weather. You never know where he's going to be. And so this is the context that Jeremiah comes into. Jeremiah grew up in a small town that overlooked a desert. And in many ways, that was symbolic of what was God was giving him to do. Israel was like a spiritual desert. And he was called to go preach and talk about God's Word. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the, uh, the movie that came out several years ago called City of Embers. Anybody see that movie? Well, that's good. You won't have to see it because I'm going to spoil it. Uh, it and you know my rule, if it's been out for more than 10 years, it's, it's free to spoil. But uh, it's this movie that is about this uh, society of people that have to migrate underground because of a catastrophe that's occurred on planet Earth. And as they go underground, their leaders give them a box which is to be opened 200 years later because they realize they're not going to be able to live underground forever. And they have this underground city, and they have these you know, lights, and they're just canned food. That's how they survive. Well, it's about that time where the city is just, it's been hundreds of years. They've forgotten even where the box is. They've forgotten where the hope is. Maybe you are like that today. And their mayors are corrupt. Their leaders are corrupt. But this young girl, teenage girl, she is a messenger. That is her calling. And she finds this box. And when the mayor finds that she has this box, he goes after her because he doesn't know what contains, but he knows it's going to threaten whatever he has. So she and a friend take this box, they open it, and it leads them through caverns and caves and through rocky you know, cliffs underground. And they finally climb on out, and they come out to the earth, and it's just beautiful. Everything's fine. But they don't just leave. They take that note, and they tie it to a rock, and they drop it. And it goes all the way down and one of their friends is waiting. Well, Jeremiah has come to drop a rock of hope into Israel. Now that rock ultimately is Jesus Christ. The one of hope. But before Jeremiah can do that, there's two things God has to drill into his heart and head. And they're the same things that you and I have to get into our heart and head. If we're going to have hope this year, if our hope is going to be more than just circumstantial. Because, you know, you never know. That relationship could end. That job could go south, right? So what is it? And it's two things. It's, it has to do with the messenger and the message. And that's what I want to take a few minutes just to look at here together. The messenger and the message. So the first thing that God wants Jeremiah to know is that he is known. That he's known. The more we learn about the brain, neurobiology uh, is just, it's amazing the things we're learning about the brain. But one of the things we come to understand is from the earliest moment, the brain is looking for another brain to connect with. 
If a brain is deprived of another brain to connect with, it will not develop. The person won't develop. And so from the earliest point, you and I long to know and be known by people. And the the Bible understands this so well with its emphasis upon being known and knowing. You hear it here. You know, Jeremiah feels insecure. He says he's young. Meaning young, he's not like one of you kids that might be eight or nine or ten. But he means young, I'm living at home still. I don't have my own income. And God comes barging into my life and he gives me this mammoth task to do. We always feel more secure when we know someone knows us. Think about this. There is a lot riding on knowing yourself. There's a lot riding on knowing yourself. If you don't really know yourself, you get into trouble, won't you? And you think about it. Maybe you think, well, I, you know, I thought I could hang out with this group of friends or be in this relationship, but I didn't know myself well enough to see that it was going to affect me in a negative way. Or I thought maybe I could handle this high-pressure job in the hours or double majoring in this or that or deciding that I was going to do this major. I didn't know myself, and it got me into trouble. You know, or I thought I could live for two years with four hours of sleep. Um, well, actually, if you're a parent, you're a little kid, you're doing that right now, right? But you might be saying, I thought I could press my body beyond its limits but you didn't really know yourself. And so we can get into trouble if we don't know ourselves. And so there's a lot of pressure in our society that you need to know yourself. We spend a lot of time taking tests and reading books and thinking, I've got to understand myself if I'm going to succeed. And the beauty of this passage is, even if you don't know yourself, God knows you. Even if you don't know yourself, and you don't, you know just a little bit. All of us are just an iceberg, you know, the big part of the iceberg's under the water. But he knows you. This is what we're, he's telling Jeremiah. I know you feel young. One of the most beautiful expressions of this is Psalm 139. I know some of you know it, but just listen to this. And, and if you can, listen to it as God is speaking it to you personally. or your prayer to God. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. A similar thing that was said to Jeremiah, right? He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. He knows us in that day-to-day. And it means that, you know, we come home and we, maybe if we have a roommate or we check in with someone by phone day-to-day or we're married, we have a family, whatever, someone will say, how's your day? And we go, oh, you know, we give them a little bit. But do you understand that God knows everything about your day all the time? Every aspect of it. His eyes are never off you. There was this really a poignant blog article that was written some years ago, and it was written by a single woman. And uh, she said, you know, my life is filled with unobserved moments. 
I come home from work or business trip and you know, no, no one sees and no, no one hears about this aspect of my life. For the Christian, there are no unobserved moments. And even if you're not a Christian, God is still watching. That watching may make you nervous, not comfort you. And in that, we understand that there is, when he says, before I knew you, I formed you, there's a timing thing that leads to the nature of the knowledge. For instance, in the Bible, the word new isn't just informational, it's relational. If you study that word new, it's not just about facts, it's about feelings. In fact, this, the word foreknow in the Bible, where it says God foreknew, you know, those he predestined, he foreknew, means foreloved. That's the knowing that God is talking about. You are known intimately and affectionately by God. So he's saying to Abraham, in Ephesians 1, we get a glimpse of this. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. Even before he made the world. Do you understand that if you're a Christian here, God was contemplating you long before he even created the world? I know it's mind-boggling. But this is what the Bible teaches. You might remember Willie Nelson singing, You are always on my mind. Or you remember that? Well, I'm not saying that God sounds like Willie, but he may have been singing that song. I don't even sound like Willie. But there's also timing here that reminds us of God's unconditional love. Because he's saying to Jeremiah, Before you could impress me, before you did anything bad or anything good, before you, before you performed well as a prophet or you didn't perform well as a prophet, before that I foreloved you, I knew you. And this is the beauty and the power of the Christian gospel when it tells us that God demonstrated his love for us, that he gave his beloved son for us before we even knew him. While we were powerless. This is God's intimate and unconditional love. You need to know this as you're heading into 2017. You really need to know this. You need to know that God, there's no unobserved moments in your life. You need to know that God's knowledge of you is intimate. And you need to know, you need to know deep in your heart that God knows you and loves you unconditionally. But it's not just being known, it's being sent. He says, before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you. That is, I set you apart, I chose you, and I set you off. Now, last night, we were, uh, my wife and I were ringing in the new year by just sort of watching a little TV, and one of the Harry Potter films was on, Half-Blood Half -Blood Prince. And if you know that, at one point, you know, he looks at, um, I forget, uh, I think Professor Slugworth, is, it, is, it, is that how you say that? What's his name? Slughorn, yeah, Slugworth is, uh, uh, help me, Willy Wonka. Yeah, I'm at the wrong place. I'm in the wrong movie. Anyway, but, you know, he says to him, you know, listen, I know I'm the chosen. And this is a theme that runs across many films. I've mentioned this once before. You know, whether it's Luke Skywalker and Star Wars, you know, whether it's Neo and The Matrix, whether it's Frodo and The Lord of the Rings, whether it's Kyle, which is Superman, wh wh whatever it is, you find this thing that there is the chosen, right? We love movies about that. And I've said no matter, what the thing that has struck me is no matter how bad their lives are, and they usually are, you know, they're, they're orphaned, they're hated, they feel rejected, no matter how bad their lives are, we still want to be them. Because they're the favored ones. They're the chosen ones. 
Well, guess what? In the Christian gospel, that becomes reality. Because God says you are holy and dearly loved. He's saying to Jeremiah, Jeremiah's going to have an incredibly difficult task. Probably harder than all the prophets. For 40 years, he will suffer and be rejected. He's called the weeping prophet. He says, oh, if I'd had a fountain of tears. I mean, Jeremiah will be beaten. He will be locked up. He will be hated. What, what in the world can hold you and I in that? I confess that I ride so much of people's approval of me. And my ability to do my job sometimes is so attached to how people feel about how I did. This guy had none of that. How can you hold on? Or Jesus Christ, who had the hardest job. Jesus wasn't just rejected by a few. He was rejected by everybody, even his best friends. He comes to bear the wrath and penalty of sin for everybody who would believe in him. Jesus has the hardest job. What in the world kept him in the game when no one else? He knew he was chosen and he was called. And he says this about you and I in John 17. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. The same thing is said about believers, that, that Jesus Christ has come to die. The book of Corinthians, chapter 6, says you have been washed. That means you have been consecrated. You have been sanctified. The book of Colossians says you have been chosen and holy and dearly loved by the God of heaven and earth. The book of Ephesians says that he has good works in advance. He's prepared in advance for you to perform. That means that there are good works for you to do in 2017 and therefore you to do. They're not for the person next to you to do. They're not for your mom or dad to do. They're not for the person that leads your community. They're not for me to do. They're not for another elder to do. They are your works to do. And God has prepared them. He's chosen you to do those things. But I think, you know, you and I need to recover our sense of sentness that we have been sent. We need to recover that. It really makes a big difference. I, I was, may have shared this story once before, but you know something you probably don't remember. And you know, we, we have a lot of uh, people in and out here. So when I was in seminary, uh, Meg and I worked for a youth group. And this youth group, the pinnacle of the year was going on this huge ski trip to Colorado. You know, this major ski trip. And we used to spend like the whole fall making fruit baskets to sell to go on this thing. I hated it. You know, I just hated it. And the thing on top of it, we don't like to ski. I know you're like, what? What? We don't like to ski. I mean, you know, and we would have other interns at seminary and they would say, please let me go in your place. And I'd say, I wish I could, but I can't. I have to go. And I, you know, I did enough complaining and murmuring that uh, it got back to the head pastor. And, uh, you know, he could have really like laid into me. But he didn't. He called me in and he, you know, we small talked a bit and he said, Yeah, you know, aren't you going on that ski trip in a couple weeks? And I said, Yeah, yes, I am. He said, Man, what a privilege for you. You know, that God has chosen it. How many kids are going? Three or four hundred kids. And a lot of those kids, right? I mean, they, they haven't sort of darkened the door of a church. And God has picked you to be able to you're going to be leading worship, right? I came out of that thing and I was just like, I'm going on a ski trip. 
you know, I felt a little bit, you know, privileged. It was a sense of sentness. You know, you didn't end up in D.C. just because something happened. You were sent here. You didn't end up in the apartment that you're doing just because you have You were sent there. You didn't end up in the job that you're going to and go, I want to. You were sent there. Even if it was difficult situations, maybe you found yourself born into a broken family or a broken system, oppression, poverty. You were sent there, even that, by God's hand, because God's people are sent people. Even before you knew Him, He was sending you. Because this is what He does. We need to recover our sense of sentness. But that's enough about the messenger. Let's close up by talking about the message. I mean, you know, when you talk about New Year's resolutions, basically they've become synonymous as jokes, right? Because no one ever does them. I was reading some stats on that. There was, there was one done in the UK, and they said that 60% of those in Britain uh, keep their uh, New Year resolution a month or less. 80% three months or less. Forbes magazine said only 8% of people actually accomplish their New Year's resolutions. Okay, let's just be honest. They're basically powerless words. Sorry to be such a downer. Maybe you spent all morning writing those things down and you've, these are my 10 things. They're basically air. You know, your shot, it's really low that you're going to get it done. And um, it's not just those words that we live by, it's other ones. Words like, if I could really succeed at school or my job, then I will be a success. Or if I could get into this relationship, if I could find somebody to love, I would be happy. Or, if I really commit myself to God this year, bad stuff won't happen to me. Powerless words to hang your future on. Empty words. They're like a bunch of New Year's resolutions, hollow. The most important thing that God tells Jeremiah is his message isn't his own. Meaning God wants to give you a better word. He wants to give you a word that works. A word that actually has power. A word that endures. A word that renews, that really can change you. He says to Jeremiah, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. And that's both a statement and a symbol. Jeremiah would need that word. And what amazes me is Jesus Christ says basically the same thing. Now keep in mind, the Christian faith teaches that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the embodiment of God's word. One of his nicknames is the Word. This is Jesus Christ. When Jesus spoke, the Word of God just popped out. You know, he speaks, there's a little bit more Bible. Teaches over here, hey, there's some more Bible. This is, this is Jesus speaking. But listen to what he says. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Now by that, Jesus wasn't saying his words were empty, but if you look at his life, he was modeling something. When Jesus was in the temple, when he was, we get that little snapshot in the Gospels. Of all the things, of all the things that God could tell us, because this is a regular question, right? We got a ton at his birth. We got a lot for the last three years of his ministry. God gives us basically nothing else about Jesus. All the things he gives us, he gives a snapshot of Jesus as a tween or a teen. 
at the temple. His parents lost him for a while. They come and find him. He's sitting there with the teachers of the law, and he's talking about the Word of God. What is we being communicated? Jesus was about the Word. And he actually learned the Bible just like you and I had to. Sit there and memorize it. That's what he spent all those years doing when he became a person. And you could see it later in his life when he's being tempted. What's he do? He quotes Deuteronomy. When he's suffocating and being crucified, what's he do? He quotes Psalm 22. It's bleeding out of him. It's breathing out of him. I mean, in our most desperate moments, the words that we believe the most are the ones that come out of us. And this is what the Son of God is doing. So I want to ask you, what words do you turn to when things don't go well? What is it? Is it figures? It always goes this way. Is it, well, at least I got a good bottle of wine at home tonight. Is it, I'll work harder. I'll work harder and it won't happen again. There are words that we turn to. God wants us to have powerful words, and all of us want to have powerful words. I will say that we all want to have comic book words. You know, comic book words is bam, pow. Right? Words that explode. We all want to have words that people respect, whether you're a parent here, whether you're a politician, whether you're a kid, whether you're a king, whether you're a teacher, whatever it be. Jesus' words would quiet seas. Even more significantly, they would quiet guilty souls. They would raise from the dead. They would forgive powerful words. When you and I don't feel like our words are powerful, we'll do certain things. We'll get loud. Or we'll use big words to impress people. Or maybe we use deceptive words. These are the things we do when we don't feel like our words are powerful. But you notice here what makes Jeremiah's words are powerful, and they will be because he says, I will set you over nations. You will have global words. Your words will be so powerful they will set over nations. And Jesus said the same thing to his followers when he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. My word will have power wherever you go. You know, no matter how many words you know here, whether you have a vocabulary of a postdoc student or whether you have a vocabulary of a fourth grader, it doesn't matter. Whether you speak in your, with a second language, whether this is your tenth language you know, the thing that makes it powerful is when words are soaked in the Word of God. I've had people change my life with their words. I've had a, a child change my life with their words. I've had someone that maybe had a third grade education change my life with words. I've seen God use my words. I remember when I was um, you know, doing uh, some short-term mission work over in Africa, and I was a college student, and Africa does not work like it does here, meaning when you're out there doing missions, it's, it's very anti-Presbyterian minister, meaning this, you don't have days to prepare your sermon. You know, we're out there in these villages somewhere, and you know, I'm next to this guy, and he's preaching and preaching, and he hands me the mic, and he goes, preach! I'm like, I don't know the language. I'll translate for you. Right? And I begin to pray. And if you've ever tried to speak when someone's translating, you know, there's a rhythm, there's a groove to it. You know, where you say this, they say that, and, and I'm just doing it all wrong. I'm saying it, and there's just these huge pauses, and I'm trying to make a joke, and it's not happening, often like it does here. You know, the point is, it's not working. And after I'm done, people would come up to me and say, you know, I, I'd see people come to faith, or I'd see someone that would later tell me, that really touched my heart because 
the power comes from. What I'm saying is if you want your words to be powerful, that's how you do it. But let's round third and go home here. It's not just that they were God's words, but the message has to be deep and true. Uh, What words shape your life the most? What words shape your life the most? It's the words that are deepest in you. Those are the words that are shaping your life. The ones that are down deep. And so, this is very encouraging. God doesn't just tell us words. He doesn't just preach words. It says that he plants words in us. Later in chapter 33 in Jeremiah, he says this. And he's talking about all those that will believe. I will put my instruction deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. The book of James says the gospel is the implanted word. God, for every believer here, God has planted his word in you. It's a living word. And you might, you know, tulips. Tulips. How many of you planted tulips in the fall? Did you remember to plant tulips? Like three people. I always forget to plant tulips. And then they come up in the spring. And I'm like, I forgot to plant tulips. Well, you may feel that way about God's word. You might feel like, man, I don't even think it's in there. It's implanted in you. Now, you can water it, you can feed it, or you can let weeds grow around it. And I think that's the case oftentimes. We are so inundated with the words of the culture in the world. I mean, if, if you and I did a study of how much time we give God and how much time we give to the commentary of the world, I, I wouldn't even compare It's probably like a minute to like, what, 19 hours a day. And then we wonder, why am I struggling so much? And I'm not just, I'm saying me too. So this is this idea that God has given us his words. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was pressed to that moment. Many of you know he was martyred. He was killed for his faith. And this was a guy that had to go to the end with the word. And this is what he had said about his habit. Why do I meditate? Because I'm a Christian. Therefore, every day which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's Word and Holy Scripture is a lost day for me. It's a lost day. Man, I often think, well, I didn't get to do what I want. That was a lost day for me. I didn't really accomplish my goals. That was a lost day. That was a lost day for him. So it's not only that God plants it deep, but it has to be true. The book of Romans, we've been hitting this theme, and we'll return there next week where we've been saying it's not enough just to have good news. If you don't have bad news, you don't have good news. And we're a culture that doesn't want to hear bad news. It's like that song in The Wiz, you know, don't bring me no bad news. We're at a time where people go, listen, if you talk about sin or selfishness, that's bad news, I don't want to hear it. But Jeremiah is called to pluck up, to break down, to destroy and overthrow. Why? To build and to plant. It's judgment and grace. And so you and I, if the word is really going to hit deep and true, we've got to let God's word convict us and penetrate us. We've got to be willing for that word to to prick us. But then the question is, does it build and plant you up? Do you just stay there? Or does the word of grace build and plant you up? And that is the word that we need to bring to the world. It can't be just a word of grace, and it can't be just a word of judgment. It may have to tear down, but always so it might build up. And so it's a message that's deep and true. In 2017, my prayer for you and I is that it might be a year that we are known and that we know that we're known, that we know that we're sent, that we know that we've given a message that's been planted in our heart and that we've given a message of judgment and grace to bring. Let's pray. 
Thank you, Lord, for uh, your words. Thank you for the scripture that you give to us. I pray that you would implant your word deep in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.